Hi, welcome to QuackCast 46. I think it's 46. I don't know what numbering system the computer is using. As I've said before, there's an issue with Rapid Weaver renumbering podcasts, which someday, if I have the time, I'm going to abandon entirely. But for the time being, your best bet is to use the RSS feed for iTunes, even if you don't use iTunes, to get the correct numbering. So this is QuackCast number 46. It's a rehash of my science-based medicine blog entry entitled Medical Voices, Always in Error, Never in Doubt. And otherwise, I'm going to skip through the usual nonsense and introduction and get right to the heart of the matter. Prior to this entry, I have written two articles on the Science-Based Medicine site in reference to medical voices. One had nine questions, which I answered. The other was on mumps, or the mumps. There are, I think, 18 web pages of articles about vaccines on that website. I am uncertain as to the true number of pages of information, as the navigation buttons at the bottom of the pages did not always seem to function correctly. That such a problem existed, and I bet you it gets fixed soon, suggests that no one has bothered, like me, to go through the website in an attempt to read all the essays. Or perhaps it's just me and the price I pay for using the Chrome web browser. Anyway, there are a large collection of essays that serve as a rich vein of iron pyrite to mine for topics. At about five entries to a page, evaluating at a pace of about one a month would take years to analyze all the misinformation on medical voices. So it occurs to me that at the center of each article is a nut of misinformation, or sometimes as many as nine nuts, that serve as the core fallacy of the article. And I want to emphasize here that I am using nut as a metaphor for seed and not in its other more colloquial meaning. I have no way of knowing if any of the authors of these web pages are indeed nuts. I, of course, have the total irrational opinion that rational thought will sway opinion. I'm a nut in my own way that way, but I cannot speak for others. So rather than an in-depth evaluation of each article, although some will warrant a future, perhaps more thorough review, I thought it would be interesting to identify the nut in each article and why it is wrong. So in the spirit, but not the intellectual rigor, of Generation Rescue's 14 studies, let's sort through the nuts. Number one, Tobacco Plants Will Now Make Vaccines, by Joseph Mercola, D.O. This is less about misinformation and more a nut of fear-mongering. One of the ongoing problems with the flu vaccine is the lag between the hopefully correct identification of the year's influenza strain and the production of the vaccine, taking about nine months to come to fruition. Each dose of flu vaccine is grown in a single chicken egg, so the infrastructure required to produce all those eggs and support that one poor chicken is huge. That poor chicken has probably not sat down for a year. What has been needed for years is a rapid, simple, and inexpensive method to generate huge amounts of flu antigen for the vaccine. 
Genetic engineering has made the production of human insulin and bacteria routine to the benefit of every insulin-acquiring diabetic. The benefit of inducing viral genes, but not the whole virus, into plants could be the ability to generate huge amounts of cheap vaccine. The other benefit is that plant infections cannot infect humans, making the vaccine theoretically safer than vaccines grown in animal cells. It reminds me of the old joke, do you know why a neurosurgeon is the only miracle doctor? Because it can turn an animal into a vegetable. As Mercola sums up, quote, keep in mind that if you place your sole trust in your health officials and vaccine makers, the potential price you might pay is your physical health and financial future. Cue the prairie dog. Everything is at stake. In my opinion, blindly believing that a plant-based vaccine will remove the possibility of viral contamination and potentially deadly side effects is foolhardy at best, end quote. Fortunately, vaccine producers test for viruses and other contaminations, so we do not have to rely on blind belief. Fortunately, for those that have a MasterCard in their wallet, he then lists a number of alternative flu treatments and preventatives that ever so kindly link to Mercola.com, where you can ever so conveniently purchase his products, many of which do require blind belief for efficacy. What gets me is that I'm the big pharma shill. Look out, Mercola, because number two, our second nut, is Whom Do We Serve? The Medical Doctor's Conundrum by Suzanne Humphreys, M.D. The nut at the center of this essay, doctors are profit-driven tools of big pharma and the government. Quote, the creativity of the caring profession has been systematically choked to death by the pharmaceutical industry, the AMA, and the government, who have been waltzing together for over 60 years. I don't think anyone's waltzed for over 100 years. Young, bright college grads do not go to medical school with any understanding that the system they are embarking upon destroys health. Rather than cures it, they are about to become pawns in a system set up for commerce, with human beings being the means of putting the check in the bank. I've never seen a waltzing pawn. I suppose Dr. Humphreys doesn't take money from her patients to treat them because that would be using human beings as a means of putting the check in the bank. Dr. Humphreys, however, knows that natural treatments are being suppressed since they cure the patient, and if cured, the patient would no longer need a doctor, eradicating the income for the medical industrial complex. I presume, if the above were true, that her practice is like that of an infectious disease doctor with no long-term patients because I cure the majority of my patients. She continues, quote, Removing heavy metals from the body is considered a risky and potentially dangerous intervention that is shunned and avoided by mainstream medicine, even though it has been done safely for over 30 years by alternative practitioners. I guess she doesn't read the death from chelation articles. This is an interesting paradox, since many of the diseases that doctors treat are related in some way to heavy metal toxicity. Hypertension, heart disease, various neurologic diseases, cancer, and kidney failure. 
could it be that addressing the cause would eliminate the need for the cure and for the doctor? End quote. I presume she's unemployed. Heavy metals? I thought all cancer were due to a liver parasite. I believe Dr. Mercola suggested as much. Could it be that heavy metals are related to, oh, I don't know, none of the diseases mentioned? And the reasons that doctors ignore heavy metal is that they are not an etiology of disease? Or, perhaps, doctors prefer light jazz. The suppression of truth for financial and other reasons is a popular refrain in the alt-med community. I have no understanding of this bizarro outlook on the medical community, as I am not sympathetic to conspiracy theories. I work in an environment where everyone is doing their best to make people better and to prevent illness. Since many of the alt-med practitioners seem to profit directly from selling the products that cure the alleged diseases they diagnose, it is yet another example of Holy Kettle calling the pot black, Batman. I sure wish I could make a buck off the diagnostic and therapeutic interventions I recommend. The third nut. What to do about all those non-vaccinating parents by Robert Sears, M.D. The nut at the center of this essay? The CDC is covering up information about parents vaccinating children. Quote, I believe the CDC has been trying to hide the fact that more and more parents are refusing or delaying vaccines. End quote. I guess Dr. Sears doesn't read all those articles about decreasing vaccination rates. Oh wait, he can't read them because the CDC is suppressing them. Or that is his belief. And that is the standard of proof at Medical Voices, I believe. These are often reference-free essays, but why would one want reality to get in the way of belief? This essay is another example of conspiracy fear-mongering. Now, I believe that the CDC is doing no such thing. So who are you going to believe? My belief or Dr. Sears' belief? Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Is proof? None. I have spent an inordinate amount of my career discussing and reading about the declining vaccination rate as part of my job in infection control. And more often than not, the source of my information is the CDC. Hmm. I guess if they are hiding this information, they are doing a lousy job. Or perhaps Dr. Sears, like so many at Medical Voices, doesn't know how to do a Google search. Number four, Censorship and Show Trials on Vaccines and AIDS by Donald W. Miller, Jr., M.D. The nut? This is a cola nut. This is an uncola nut. You guys remember that? Or am I that old? What follows is not a parody, but a direct quote from Medical Voices. Quote, Peter Duesberg and Andrew Wakefield are two tenacious, brave men. They struggle against the medical government pharmaceutical complex's efforts to disenfranchise them, and they have endured a withering barrage of ad hominem attacks, but they do not flinch in their efforts to see truth reign. Duesberg with AIDS and Wakefield with vaccines. One hopes that in the not-too-distant future, both of these truths will pass through Schopenhauer's third stage and become accepted as self-evident. 
once fully accepted the pandemic of autism spectrum disorders and the chronic diseases that now afflict so many children, asthma, allergies, arthritis, enterocolitis, and diabetes will abate. And AIDS by prescription, AIDS caused by taking antiretroviral drugs that doctors prescribe to HIV-positive people. DNA chain terminators like AZT and protease inhibitors will cease. The day will come when the CDC withdraws its childhood immunization schedule and stops recommending that vaccines be given to children under two years of age. HIV tests will no longer be done and antiretroviral drugs will be outlawed. End quote. Dr. Miller knows the truth with a big T. Or perhaps Mr. T. I pity the poor fool who thinks AIDS is caused by HIV. Unfortunately, Wakefield lied, and Deuceberg is simply wrong. There are almost 300,000 articles on HIV and AIDS on PubMed, representing perhaps a million authors, demonstrating remarkably sophisticated understanding about the, both the biology of HIV and its complications. To think, maybe a million HIV researchers and physicians are all working together to keep Peter Duesberg's truth suppressed. Wow. My career started with the HIV epidemic. That's association, not causation. And I have watched the evolution of our understanding of the disease and its treatment. We have gone from a nine-month life expectancy to an almost normal lifespan thanks to HIV medications. To suggest HIV is not a cause of AIDS, but that, quote, the real cause of AIDS is fourfold heavy-duty recreational drug use, antiretroviral drugs, receptive anal intercourse, I will make no Freudian references here, and malnutrition, end quote, is an interesting interpretation of the medical literature. I am glad Dr. Miller is a heart surgeon. Huh. So's Oz, come to think of it. And especially glad that he will never be my heart surgeon. Again, I keep thinking of DC Comics' Bizarro World, where everyone on that square planet, spelled H-T-R-A-E, does the opposite of what is done on the real Earth. Many of the medical voices' essays could have been written on Bizarro World. The trials and tribulations of Dr. Wakefield have been well covered on science-based medicine. I would wonder if, however, rather than measles or autism researchers, it had been Dr. Miller's financial advisor who had exhibited the same behaviors as Dr. Wakefield, inventing information for investing and then bought Enron for him. Would he be so understanding when he lost his 401k, calling his advisor a tenacious, brave man struggling against the banking government investing complex? I somehow doubt it. Number six on our hit parade of medical voices essays, smallpox vaccine, the origins of vaccine madness. The first two thirds of this entry are a recounting of the early history of the smallpox vaccine. It is an entertaining read, but not being a historian, I cannot vouchsafe the information. 
At no time in the essay, however, does the author bother to note that the vaccinations of Jenner's time, which was a transfer of smallpox-laden pus, is not the same as the modern vaccine production techniques. And then it gets weird. There has been no human smallpox in the world since 1976. There are many other pox viruses, a family of related viruses that preferentially infect a different host. There is cowpox and monkeypox and squirrelpox. The cowpox was used in the vaccine to eradicate smallpox because there is enough similarity between the two viruses that infection with the cowpox virus prevents infection with smallpox. But there is enough difference between the two pox viruses that it is very rare for the cowpox to spread beyond the inoculation site. The fact that there has been no smallpox since 1976 is, it would seem, reasonably good evidence that there is no longer human smallpox in the world and that the vaccination was the cause of its eradication. However, Dr. Craig has a clever solution. Her nut? Smallpox is still around, but it's been renamed as either chickenpox or monkeypox. Really, that's her theory. The essays on medical voices induce a need to qualify that the quotes from this site are the real deal and not meant as a joke on my part. This rationalization is akin to saying that the dodo is no longer extinct. It has merely been renamed the chicken or the turkey. Both, after all, are flightless birds. I don't even think they could come up with something like this on Bizarro World. Number 7. Pandemic Panic Hits the World Health Organization by William Campbell Douglas II, M.D. The nut, the H1N1 flu epidemic, was faked by the WHO to sell drugs and vaccines. This article was published in February 2010, and the idea has had a resurgence of late, thanks to the British Medical Journal. Now, everyone who's an infectious disease doc, such as myself, learns about the pandemic of 1918-1919, which killed maybe 40 million people worldwide and 600,000 in the United States. We worry that one day a new strain of flu will emerge with the right combination of virulence factors and there will be a repeat of 1918. Luckily, we dodged that bullet with the 2009-2010 pandemic. The H1N1 was highly infectious, but fortunately, relative to other flu strains of the past, it was not very virulent. There were an estimated 61 million infected people. Hard to make up 61 million infected people. 274,000 hospitalizations and about 12,000 deaths by CDC estimates. Deaths, like the 1918 pandemic, predominated in the young, under 65, and the pregnant. Elderly pregnant people were protected. I always like the way anti-vaccine proponents belittle the mortality and morbidity of vaccine-preventable illnesses. Quote, I'm sure by now you've noticed the swine flu is nothing more than a sniffle, unquote. 12,000 deaths. A sniffle. For a short period of time, my hospitals, just as the flu season peaked, 
were maxed out. We had no beds, we had no vents, and there was a worry about how we were going to find the staff and space to treat patients if the increase in flu-related admissions continued. And then, poof, the rates fell instead of increased. I have never leaned so far over the edge of a precipice before and been pulled back from what appeared to be a disaster. It still amazes me months later. Now, I saw two related deaths. H1N1 was more than a sniffle for them. 162 million doses of vaccine were produced and distributed, but only 90 million were given. So, maybe 60 million cases of flu were prevented from the 90 million shots given. If that's indeed the case, then the vaccine could potentially have saved 12,000 lives. Of course, people in public health are always screwed. They will either underprepare or overprepare for a disaster and get blamed either way. They didn't do enough and people died, or they did too much and wasted money. The solution? I think we should fill the WHO, uh, probably the WHO, and the CDC with psychics. Miss Cleo should be in charge. And we can just call her for her free reading now. Okay, now we're up to number eight. Forced Vaccinations, Government, and the Public Interest by Russell Blaylock, M.D. There is the philosophical political question as to whether the government has the right to force vaccinations. It is not a scientific question. The questions of safety and efficacy are answerable by science. Part of this essay is philosophical, and Dr. Blaylock evidently blames vaccination policy on, well, I feel kind of odd saying this because it seems so, well, weird. But he blames... um the Rockefellers for vaccinations in the U.S. Really? <laughs> the Rockefellers? And you thought renaming smallpox was strange. Quote, The Rockefellers either owned outright or had controlling interest in all the major pharmaceutical companies. This has given them absolute and extremely powerful access to the reins of power at all levels, yet they can't be defeated by the truth. End quote. So, last century, could we at least have the suggestion of a modern conspiracy like, I don't know, reptilians? Because I, for one, bow down to my lizard overlords. I did find some websites to suggest that, in fact, the Rockefellers are high-order reptilians. So I cannot dismiss this argument out of hand. Repeat after me. In the context of this essay... Nut is metaphorically referring to, quote, a hard-shelled fruit of some plants having an indehiscent seed, unquote. And I'm sticking with that. As to the science, his major contention is that herd immunity is a myth and proceeds to make a series of calculations to prove that herd immunity is indeed a myth. He combines all vaccines, each with different efficacies, as if they all have the same efficacy. There are several characteristics of anti-science, anti-vaccine writers. They do not like change, they do not like subtlety, and they like their topics to be all or nothing. His basic argument is that vaccine response has been discovered to fade with time. Also, I might add, water is wet and fire? It's hot. Since we do not have outbreaks of vaccine-preventable illnesses in the population who have inflated immunity, herd immunity therefore must be 
a myth. What a surprise. He fails to take into account that fading antibody levels do not necessarily mean fading ability to respond to infection, since many who have been vaccinated will have an amnestic response to the infection. They will gear up antibody production after re-exposure faster than if they had not been vaccinated. Then there's also behavior, nutrition, hygiene, and understanding of disease that has helped decrease spread of illness compared to the outbreaks. But like most anti-vaccinators, they still need a better term. Term. Vaccinators. Terminators. Probably been done and it's probably copyrighted. Either the vaccines are 100% or they are nothing. Like many anti vaxxers, terminators, he fails to understand or chooses not to consider subtlety and nuance. Part of vaccination results in vector control. For example, vaccination of children with the conjugated pneumococcal vaccine has led to a marked decrease in invasive pneumococcus in the adult and elderly population. So targeting disease in one population can prevent disease in another non-immune population. However, waning immunity is an issue with pertussis, and the reservoir for disease in children is vaccinated adults whose immunity has faded. But there is sufficient immunity to prevent whooping cough. Reality is always more complicated and nuanced than the fantasy world of the anti-vaxxers. The rest of his argument, quote, The fact that powerful, enormously wealthy foundations such as the Ford Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Rockefeller series of foundations are supporting forced vaccination greatly enhances the power of governments all over the world, end quote. And world is a capital W. The big irony, from my perspective, is an important issue with vaccines is the ease with which people can get an exemption. I looked for statements from the above foundations to see if I could find recommendations for forced vaccinations. All I found was the statements of Dr. Blaylock. But of course, that is what the Rockefellers want me to write. Shh, don't let anybody know. They are out to get us. I know this argument appeals to some, but I don't get it. This seems so fringe it should be on a Surrey. Watch that fringe. See how it flutters. That's from Oklahoma, by the way. Talk about obscure references. Next is number nine. Number nine. An unwelcome third wheel. Patient vaccination without doctor authorization. They're not really good at their metaphors here. I'm not certain how vaccination is a third wheel, but anyway. The basic nut of this essay is that vaccinations are <gasps> routinely given in the hospital to patients without a doctor's specific order. This is true of many hospitals. I have long been a big proponent of these policies in my institutions at the behest of my lizard slash Rockefeller masters. Part of the quality indicators of hospitals is to make sure that all patients have both the flu vaccine and the pneumococcal vaccine. The secret to quality care, as I have discovered over the years, is that you have to take the responsibility out of the hands of the physician, since more often than not, in a busy, complicated day, they may forget. 
It is only when we have taken the responsibility out of the hands of physicians who are focused on acute problems and make vaccination routine has compliance with numerous quality initiatives improved with the subsequent 